Entering a supermarket today looks rather different than it did almost a year ago. Shoppers are wearing face masks and floor stickers are signaling us to keep at least 1.5 meters distance to others. But how exactly do you influence a society to follow COVID-adapted behavior? In this interview, we speak to Lucia Reich, Professor of Consumer Behavior and Consumer Policy at CBS. Beyond teaching, Lucia is involved as principal investigator in several large EU research projects on consumer behavior and policy and further consults several councils related to the German federal government. Today, Lucia explains what role behavioral public policies and in particular nudging play in overcoming the pandemic. Welcome, Lucia. Could you maybe introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you are doing? Hello from home office. My name is Lucia Reich. I'm a professor for behavioral economics and consumer behavior at CBS Sustainability. And uh, I work with a wonderful team of young staff um, in our lab, which is the consumer and behavioral research group at CBS Sustainability. And how is your current work related to COVID-19? So um, as most social scientists do these days, I'm currently working on several COVID-related research items and started a few new, new projects and some consultancy. And uh, let me very briefly share that with you. Uh, so first, as a researcher, I'm involved in a worldwide survey study on how households adjusted to the lockdowns as regards their food behavior. It's called Corona cooking, which is really nice with uh, many, many countries and very nice data from all over the world that is now coming in and uh, being analyzed now. Second, I just last week, I submitted an EU uh, project proposal on how to use social science and particular behavioral science um, to be better prepared for disasters. So this is within the realm of disasters research that includes pandemics, not only, but also pandemics. And uh, I must say that was very much inspired by the last month. And uh, third, as a member of the Academy of Science in uh, Germany, I'm uh, involved since a few months in a group consulting the German government on using behavioral insights-based policies, so-called nudges and choice architecture in health policies. So that's mostly regarding like social distancing, mask wearing, but also risk communications. And now autumn coming and getting vaccinated, very practical stuff. So this is what I'm currently uh, involved in, kind of the COVID-19 researcher fallout. So coming to the reason why you are here today, You are not only um, an expert in sustainability, but also a leading researcher in the field of nudging. Could you maybe explain to us what is nudging and also what is it not? Nudging is basically a more or less colloquial expression, is not a scientific term uh, for the use of behavioral insight-based policies, and usually by governments, but also by Uh, institutions such as schools or hospitals or cities or yeah, you name it. So someone with an official um, mission. That's why we talk about policies and about regulatory nudges. So this is something else than 
when like you as yourself, you can also employ nudges, nudging yourself, sometimes called nudges, or when businesses or um, website creators are using nudges. These are commercial nudges, and they are not covered, of course, by behavioral public policy. But I mean, basically, the use of you know, harnessing people's real behavior, like biases and heuristics, that's pretty much the same in both. But my work is actually on regulatory nudges, which are defined that they must be must aim to improve people's welfare, wealth, health, whatever. So basically, nudge is a concept from behavioral economics and policy, and the, the core idea is actually to use positive reinforcement, which is not financial reinforcement, could be like you know, social praise or shame, as well as indirect suggestion as ways to influence behavior uh, and decision-making groups, but also individuals also institutions, even companies. So the difference to those other policy tools that are around, such as information, communication, um, but also the hard stuff like laws, um, bans, taxes, etc., is that it is kind of in between. It does work. It does have an impact, usually and on average, not always. Um, but it is more, um, it, it has this big voluntary aspect in it. So we, you can enforce them, right? It is, you can suggest and you can apply them, you can test whether they work, but there's no way to enforce behavior if you use nudging. Perfect. Thank you for this explanation. Could you maybe name a few examples of how we experience nudging? So some very well known examples from health are for instance defaults we know them from organ donation so it makes it really matters whether in a country you have an opt-in or opt-out default for organ donation because you have to actively opt out in case you don't agree with the option given and then we have lots of uh, um, work in uh, choice Uh, choice architecture of context. So make things easy for people. Make them, if you want to get them vaccinated, do anything to reduce their hassle. Then the framing of messages, simplifications, reminders, but also warnings and products, um, pledges, and so on. Then there's also a type of nudges that harness an effect that we are actually social animals our social surroundings and the praise or shame of our peers matter a lot to us. So social norms, particularly dynamic social norms, which is norms that are just about to be established, the new social norms are very, very successful, not just in the sense, successful in the sense that they tend to help indeed change behavior. And this is important. We not just directly target behavior. So this is something else then education and information and socialization, which is super, super relevant, but they mostly target knowledge, intentions, attitudes, but less the behavior themselves. Maybe another example, uh, I already talked quickly about 
self nudges or snudges. So these are little stimuli we do ourselves or that we curate our environment in order to overcome biases that we know we have or procrastination or forgetfulness. Um, so things like little self reminders or self nudges can be can be quite helpful. And then there's something just to uh, to follow on the, the, the ideas and the different uh, definitions that have been called by um, some of the most prominent scholars in the field, sludges. So sludges, um, you know the word sludge, it's nothing, it's nothing very nice. And the, what the word says is that these are dismal nudges. They do not aim to increase people's welfare but rather maximize profit or try to elicit you know, private data from you on the web. And when I said this is about policy and regulator nudges, it's of course a different game than when companies are using them. Of course, companies also adhere, have to adhere to uh, some ethics of businesses, but much more so governments because, uh, governments because they do curate our environment and they're very powerful and in the end we are the ones at least in democratic societies who are electing them so together with my colleague Cass Sunstein from Harvard uh, I developed a set of rules uh, that nudging of governments must actually follow to be acceptable in uh, democratic institutions and almost the most important thing is that nudges are transparent so that they are debatable uh, they can be put they are part of the the, the public uh, debate and uh, usually also the uh, democratic parliamentary process processes they must be welfare enhancing as judged by the people themselves so it is not about um, imposing a specific goal on people but people they have goals and those little nudges help them actually fulfill these goals um, because people you might know that from yourself we're not always on the rational side of life we forget things uh, we are um, yeah social animals we tend to do other things we are sometimes lazy anyway we we don't really follow up our preferences so this is like a little help by my friends the nudges ideally to make this most both most effective and also most uh, approvable. Uh, the process of behavioral public policy is an open one, including those who are nudged. There's different ways how to do that, but some participatory aspect must be part of it. A colleague of mine from the UK, John Peters, um, calls that a nudge plus. Okay, wow. Yeah, those are indeed quite a lot of examples and I would say a lot of areas where the nudges are really well hidden and not that obviously for us to see. If you had to break down your very detailed explanation in um, a main takeaway basically or a small summary, what would you say are the most important aspects of behavioral public policies? Okay, when we speak of behavioral public policy, let me uh, wrap that up. We basically need three things. First, nudges as a distinct tool, policy tool, such as defaults. Second, we also speak of 
improving existing traditional tools such as information or even taxes or even yeah kind of financial uh, um, financial subsidies where for instance the timing is can be very very important in making them success or not success and third we also mean a specific type of policy making i already touched upon that it is uh, empirical it's experimental and my colleague Penny Hansen from Roscoe University has developed for the OECD something called the basic toolkit that explains how this process actually works. Uh, because at its core, behavioral public policy is a design, test, learn, adapt, retest, and share the results with others process. So it's a policy loop with a lot of learning trial, experiments, pilots, learning from it, and only then roll out the policy. Okay, so now a few might be wondering, what has that to do with COVID-19? My next question would be, how can nudging be used to create incentives for COVID-19 adaptive behavior? Nudging is indeed used very widely, very heavily in the current uh, COVID pandemic. Uh, let me just share with you that the uh, World, World Health Organization just installed a few weeks ago a behavioral unit. And uh, my co-author, Cass Hustin, is actually chairing this unit. Um, so um, yeah, many governments rely on how to make use of these small, non-binding, yet potentially forceful tools in creating, for instance, adherence to rules of social distancing or creating good habits or using it in risk communication. So it's all really all about uh, positive enforcement and indirect suggestion. For instance, triggering hurt behavior. So um, like the cue could be visual or a text, most others or nine out of 10 wore a mask. You know, it might be a good idea if I wear that too. So it's kind of a, it's information, but it's a little bit more. It's also about saying, yes, this is, this is what, you know, others and the informed, uh, informed experts think this is the thing to do. Uh, another example is the, uh, the German Corona app, which is full of small digital nudges. Uh, starting from the colors uh, and used to the you know, supportive tone uh, and the simple handling. So just look around everywhere in the stores, in the train stations, in public transport, and you see all those simple visual cues like duct tapes everywhere and little reminders. Um, what might be less visible, but also important, is the choice of framing of the messages that, for instance, the uh, um, national epidemiologists, you know, when you listen to them, they're full of uh, positive frames. So and, uh, just to, to give you an example, there is, uh, there's quite a difference if someone says um, <clears throat> one out of 10 patients die in intensive care or nine out of 10 are healed in intensive care. It's statistically the same thing, but it matters. We have different sentiments with it. We take different cues from it. <clears throat> and depending also on the person, the receiver of these messages, there's of course lots of differences, individual differences, but basically it does 
um, either elicit loss or a wind frame, which does something to our decision. So as you can probably already sense that framing comes with a lot of responsibility, particularly in times when scientific knowledge is actually not as robust as we would like it to be. And uh, unfortunately, this is still the case and will probably be the case for quite a while. And uh, maybe another example that uh, someone uh, make me aware of is Maastricht University. Uh, they put up large mirrors in the hallways, directly addressing the viewer when you walk through the highways and highlighting everyone's responsibility in the fight against COVID with big, big letters saying, like, this is you, you, know, you can do this. So those mirrors are, of course, nudges, they are reminders. Um, they certainly make the message very salient, but also very personal and moral. Why? Because we have to look in the mirror. There's a saying like, you know, I have to be able to see my face in the mirror. This is exactly what it does. I'm sure this is a behavioral experiment, by the way, so watch out. Maybe from another, uh, one other cue is that um, it's interesting from a gender perspective. Um, also, there's something called the white male effect. This is an empirical finding from risk research. Um, and it has to date mainly, um, mostly been studied in um, climate change deniers. So. It basically says that conservative white men are a difficult target group because they feel more empowered and um, less vulnerable than average and probably also feel a sense of agency. Yeah. They do rate the, their risk, their personal risk for themselves lower. And the same seems to be true. There's, but this is non-peer reviewed evidence, early evidence, the same seems to be true for COVID. Um, which means they're hard to reach. So a nudge I would probably try with this group is would be particular uh, peers telling them that you know this is a little bit different than what they think. Here we also have something called the source effect. So of course it's not just what and how something is said, but also who says it. I mean, who has the the authority, the legitimacy to tell me what to do? That's a big issue, not to create reactions and to at least let, uh, give the possibility to um, yeah, have the message sync. What's also interesting for a consumer researcher and particularly for someone who does a lot of work in cross-cultural research and cultural differences. So um, we know from our own empirical work that the people in some countries, and this is mainly from a worldwide survey, Denmark and Hungary, in general, approve less than average of health and green measures. Um, that seems to be linked to a general um, disapproval of um, having governments intrude in their lifestyles. And uh, I mean, let's let's face it, uh, health nudges are pretty, pretty close to our daily decisions on what to do, how to meet people. Uh, this is very, very deep into our everyday lives. So there's, you know, I surely understand it. Um, it's interesting that those two countries are actually kind of 
not exactly nudge enthusiasts, and probably that's what we found for different reasons. So in Hungary, there's a very, very low trust in government in general. That's completely different for Denmark, that is on the top list, uh, list of uh, trustful, uh, trust in government nations. So there seems to be more sense of independence, very strong individualism, and not letting government merge or intrude in one's private life. In Germany, um, you know, we're even known to be in general uh, to follow rules, and uh, overall, um, until today, it's uh, you know people tend mostly except for young males, <laughs> follow the rules. Um, and this is in spite of those, I think, completely irresponsible demonstrations you see these days, particularly in Berlin. And the interesting thing, this is like almost a small self-experiment. I spent uh, most of the lockdown months in, in Germany showed to me mask wearing or you know, disinfection, social distancing has become a new habit. Uh, which I could tell when I went back to Denmark um, that I actually missed that in uh, the, the the world around me. So I'm wondering, we saw that people were very willingly following the rules in uh, spring when the situation was very novel and um, there was a lot of things we didn't know about the coronavirus, basically. Are people showing the same willingness towards precaution in following ways compared to this very first initial one? Or is this something that changes throughout the crisis? Yeah, uh, how long will that will that keep working? How, how long will actually people follow those nudges? And in general, timing is absolutely key in politics and the same holds true for nudging. Timing is of course the question, when? But then also for how long? So it's not surprising that earlier in the pandemic, um, it is much easier to get people to agree to do things that they basically feel uncomfortable to or maybe even oppose. And then later in the pandemic, uh, with personal risk perception decreasing and, you know, looking around, it's not that bad after all. So those uh, doomsday scenarios did not happen. So, you know, um, it, it becomes really, really hard. So the later you start with those habit creating measures, the more difficult. There's this nice uh, picture of um, juggling through a pandemic, which is the hammer and dance for policymakers. So the hammer in the beginning is pretty easy. I mean, it's a lockdown. You ban things and people basically largely comply with it. And then after a while it becomes really difficult because that's when the dance starts. You have to maybe also you know do one step ahead and one to the side and then reassure yourself it's it is much it, the times of very very challenging um political leadership and we can just hope that um we have those extremely good and trustworthy political leaders that actually um can do can dance this dance and also, if those measures are introduced and are seen as either useless or are just going on for too long, it's also pretty uh, normal to see something that is called behavioral fatigue, meaning that people are getting tired of the measures. And we see that everywhere. And uh, when I talk to epidemiologists and doctors, they are actually quite nervous about 
the coming um, flu season in the, the second phase. So my last word on that is um, yes, in times of crisis, there's also there are also at least when you look back, often windows of opportunities, and those windows of opportunities are I can see I can see some types of also like startups flourishing and social entrepreneurs that are now there and have developed um, ways and smart ways how to uh, use nudges, for instance, specializing on nudging for good in both the climate and the health sector and both crises and solutions go together. This is something that we were really told in the past months. So, for instance, I'm thinking of a small uh, startup in, in Berlin as a consultancy, and, and they uh, they use their expertise and network to help governments, but also public transports, hospitals, health insurance, cities, to design supportive pandemic, and hopefully soon past pandemic, spreading nudges and choice architecture. I believe we all agree on this last point especially. And with these final words, we are already at the end of this episode. Thank you so much, Lucia, for your time and for bringing this topic a bit closer to us. If you enjoyed this format, please hit like, tell your friends about us and subscribe to our channel. Feel inspired? Find out how to get involved by heading to our website, covid-wise.org. COVIDWISE is a production by the Social Business Model Panorama and Copenhagen Business School.